my name is Harold Furch, Scott Roth. Welcome to this session of the Center for the Economics of the Internet here at the Hudson Institute. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. We have our online audience as well streaming live this program. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping notes before we get started. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we will have Professor Randy Barnett of Georgetown Law School here to speak to us about his new book on constitutional law. In October, we'll have Commissioner Michael Riley of the Federal Communications Commission coming to speak to us as well. Details to follow. For those of you who have questions from our online audience, our Twitter feed is at Hudson Events. At Hudson Events for our questions for our speaker today. Our speaker today, we're very honored to have with us uh, Jeffrey Herbst, the president and CEO of the museum, our neighbor just a couple of blocks away here on Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, uh, Professor Herbst, President Herbst, uh, has a distinguished career in academia, having recently been president of Hamilton College in upstate New York, uh, and before that, a very distinguished career of teaching in academia, uh, and has spent uh, a great deal of time in Africa as well. He is uh, a uh, uh, one of uh, the rare breed today, uh, 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 an academic with extraordinary broad uh, talent and reach across many disciplines. Uh, and one of those disciplines uh, is, uh, I think, uh, some incredibly intriguing ideas about uh, the Internet and uh, civil uh, civility on the internet. I'll, I'll describe it as that. And with that, let me turn things over to Jeffrey. Well, thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Delighted to be at the Hudson Institute's New Digs. Uh, and thank you so much for the kind introduc introduction. My former colleagues will demand that I note one correction, which was I was president of Colgate University in Hamilton, New York. Yeah. Uh, we. Uh, Believe me, there were, many a, there were many a prospective student who showed up at the uh, Colgate University admissions office with questions about Hamilton College. Uh, and no doubt, vice versa, we immediately decided not to admit those uh, <laughs> funds. Uh, but it is great to be here. Um, I am uh, extraordinarily interested in the topic of civility and social media. I think we can all agree that social media has done a great many things in terms of informing us, connecting people, uh, watching the occasional cat video. Uh, but there are also real problems uh, with the way in which uh, an increasing number of Americans communicate a majority of the time, especially young people. And much of my early concern actually dates back to my time at Colgate University. And specifically, I became familiar with the social media platform Yik Yak. How many of you know what Yik Yak is? Um, there we go. Um, this is a, a platform, like many others, where people can post anonymously. Uh, its innovation is its geocached, which is 
uh, for the Colgate Yik Yak page, only people within five miles of Colgate University can post. And similarly for every other college and university that's been given a page or like. Um, that means it is both anonymous, but you have some notion that the community is people around you. And a lot of Yik Yak's uh, content is exactly what you would expect uh, from college students, where to go out, who drank the most, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But occasionally, uh, it, uh, it goes over, the comments go over to misogynistic, bullying, um, and sometimes uh, threats of violence. And its power, specifically this platform, and social media's power in general, became especially evident to me when uh, about 150 students uh, conducted a sit-in of Colgate's admissions office in the fall of 2014. Uh, and that sit-in was about uh, the issues that are apparent on a lot of campuses, race relations, tensions about class, uh, sexual orientation, uh, national origin, and the like. Um, and students started telling their stories uh, to each other and to the administrators who were sitting there. And these were very emotive and very personal stories. And then every once in a while, someone would stand up and say, want to hear what they're saying about us on Yik Yak? Until finally one of the students said, no, we don't. We want to tell our stories. Uh, but even that, that very personal moment where students had tried to assert themselves, it was interesting that social media kept disrupting what might call their narrative. Eventually, interestingly enough, the Colgate University faculty took over Yik Yak for a few days because anyone could post and posted things like, uh, make sure you dress warmly, it's winter, uh, and uh, get some sleep before the big exams, and they signed their names, unlike most who just posted anonymously. But of course, uh, as adults, um, they had eventually other things to do. They left Yik Yak and returned to the province, mainly of students. Uh, what to do? about Yik Yak, what to do about some of the very nasty things that I saw said about the students uh, who I care deeply about. Uh, at least few of the posts were actually violent in nature, and we tried to refer those to the district attorney of, um, of Madison County, but uh, with little avail. Uh, we tried to get Yik Yak uh, to give us the metadata on a few, a few people who had posted. I can't say they necessarily were students, uh, because we believe that the posts were in violation of the terms of use of the platform. Uh, they refused that also. So basically, uh, we were left with a platform where at least some people had said quite horrible things, and where generally the discussion uh, wasn't very pleasant at all. So what I'm trying to think about, and I look forward to the discussion with you, is how to develop uh, etiquette for the internet. And I want to occupy what is, I think, a fairly uh, tenuous space. Much of the early thinking around the internet, of course, was very libertarian. Uh, <laughs> that the internet was seen as challenging governments, as a space apart from governments. John Perry Barlow, in his 1996 um, Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, which was an important document at the time, wrote, in our world, all the sentiments and expressions of humanity, from the debasing to the angelic, are part of a seamless whole, the global conversation of bits. 
no holds barred, anything goes. On the other hand, we have seen in our society, and especially on campuses more recently, all kinds of attempts to censor speech by establishing speech codes, safe zones, speech regulations, and the like. I'm opposed to those. I believe that college's uh, intellectual foundation should be on the basis of free speech. For instance, I was asked to block Yik Yak on the university's wireless network. That was a purely symbolic measure because students could still have accessed it through their cellular network, but it would have been a sign that said, well, if you're using our system, you can't go there. I said no. I didn't think it was appropriate, even though there were horrible things being said, for a university to be blocking a website like that. Uh, so I want to occupy the space where I don't think we should have speech codes or government regulations, but I care deeply about the content of what is said on the internet. So how to develop a voluntary etiquette of the internet, a way of communicating with each other which does not rely on an impingement of our free expression, free speech rights, is really what I want to discuss. Now, it's been noted since the beginning of cyberspace uh, that discussions tend to degenerate. Uh, Mike Godwin's law that as an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one was actually published in 1990. Uh, so at the very start of the internet, uh, this problem was recognized. And Americans, and I dare say people across the globe, but I'll stick with Americans, have both embraced social media and they dislike parts of it. And this is one of the very interesting paradoxes of our time. There is a problem of civility in our country. 95% of respondents in one recent survey, the Weber, Shandrick, and Tate study, Civility in America, found that 95% of Americans found that there was some kind of issue with civility. 70% believe it's a crisis. And 50% believe that the tone on YouTube, Facebook, and blogs is uncivil, and many believe almost the same about Twitter. In a more recent survey that the Knight Foundation did with the museum, we found that even among college students, the digital natives, as it were, about 41% said that the conversation on social media was not civil, and 74% said it was too easy to say something anonymously. If you look at studies uh, and books that are coming out, I think this becomes even more evocative. Nancy Jo Sale's recent book, American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers, um, provides an important study of what is going on with adolescents. Social media is ubiquitous. About 88% of girls have access to cell phones, 73% have access to smartphones, and 24% report being on those phones almost constantly. Sales documents an extraordinary length, bullying, sexism, and threats that many of these young women are exposed to. 
As one girl said, social media is destroying our lives. Yet when asked the inevitable question, why don't you get off, another one said, because then we would have no life. I think this is an important point about the whole digital natives, digital migrants discussion. The tactile manipulation of devices and the ease of which someone can um, enter these platforms does not mean that people are fully comfortable with what's going on in cyberspace. In fact, a very large number of young people are extremely unhappy about what's going on in cyberspace. They just don't know what to do about it. Indeed, I think many of the problems you see on college campuses come from the fact that this is the first generation that was raised on ubiquitous social media. The fact that you can defriend someone whose voice or opinions you don't like, that it's quite common, even accepted, to answer someone with a flame, derogatory, or violent comment. Uh, the fact that these students have seen this all their lives, as it were, makes it hardly surprising that when they come to the dormitory and someone has an opposing view across the hallway, they don't necessarily embrace that. And more generally, because students don't know what to do about the opposing voice, about the viewpoint they disagree with, other than what they've seen in social media, they immediately resort to some of the censorship activities that we've seen on college campuses, like speech codes uh, and the like. And more generally, I think the coarseness of our national conversation especially around the 2016 election, can be traced to, in part, what is happening on social media. Now, I'm now old enough to recognize that every generation bemoans the manners of the young. Uh, I get that. Uh, nonetheless, I think there's a problem, and I take as primary evidence that young people themselves say they're vitally concerned about what is happening on this set of platforms which has come to define their lives. What to do? I don't think the tech community has been particularly helpful. Uh, the libertarian streak, which started, the, started with the origin of the internet, still pervades, and there's a reflexive um, a move against not only government censorship, which there should be, but any kind of discussion about content. Uh, and many of the advocates of a free internet, which I consider myself one, shy away from even voluntary discussions of what should be said on social media. I think that's a mistake. Uh, only recently have the Silicon Valley companies begun to take this issue, I think, with seriousness, and then largely around terrorism and violent threats that emerge from terrorists. Uh, and there's been all kinds of talk of taking people off Twitter accounts and developing algorithms which could define terroristic activities. Uh, but the horrible things that some teenagers say to another, that's not being discussed as something the companies want to take on. So social media's main characteristics are that it's faceless, fast, universally accessible and scalable. Of those, the only one that can really be challenged is anonymity. The others are involved with the technology and they're just going to happen. 
And my major suggestion, what I'd like to talk with you about and hear your ideas, is that there should be an all-out war against anonymity. Simply put, we should be sending out as a signal to everyone, and especially young people, that it doesn't count unless you put your name on it, and you should not pay attention to it unless you know that someone else's name is credibly on it. Now, I recognize, of course, that there are appropriate moments for anonymous speech, whistleblowers, dissidents in authoritarian countries and the like. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Yik Yak and Facebook and other platforms where not the great issues of the day, government corruption or authoritarianism are discussed, but rather uh, in social interaction, which may be legal, which is legal, but should be unacceptable from our society. Now, over time, I think we've started to catch up a little bit with the technology, although clearly the technology is way ahead of social mores at the moment in our thinking about etiquette. The move against anonymous comments on newspaper websites, uh, the efforts by some like Margaret Sullivan uh, to get more sourced reporting and not, uh, not have newspapers rely so much on, anonym, on anonymity, I think those are very important. However, I think more should be done. I think we should look to the venture capital firms that fund some of these social media platforms. Uh, Sequoia Capital, a renowned VC firm, led the $61 million B round funding of Yik Yak. Now, I know and have many great friends on Sand Hill Road, and they just didn't need to go there, frankly, uh, to have their businesses be robust and thriving. Just as it would have been unacceptable, I think, for most on Sand Hill Road to fund hardcore pornography sites, I think we should get to the point where they should say, voluntarily, without government censorship, but voluntarily, we don't want to fund anonymous social commentary. And we should also try to stress positive instances where people have put their name forward and had constructive conversations in difficult environments. You've all read about some of the bad things that are happening on college campuses with regard to restrictions on free expression or free speech. Those are very unfortunate moments. I will also tell you there are 4,000 colleges and universities in this country, and there are a lot of other stories. Working with the Knight Foundation, we're looking across the country right now uh, to find instances where college communities resolve difficult problems without curtailing free expression or free speech. And we want to publicize those examples. And I'll be writing a guide to best practices in the fall, which takes evidence from where people had really difficult discussions with their name on it without censorship and reach some kind of conclusion. Those examples are out there also. They need to be publicized as much as the bad stories. And I think we should look more generally to our national leaders uh, for instances when they put their name forward and spoke in environments which were not necessarily hospitable, but where they could make a constructive presence. Why I'm not politically aligned with Senator Sanders, 
the fact that he went to Liberty University, founded by Jerry Falwell in September 2015, and began by saying, not many of you agree with me on some big issues like abortion, gay rights, but I'm here, and I think we can find common ground on other things. He wasn't going to get many votes that night. He went anyhow. And the students, although met, some saw Senator Sanders as the champion of murdering unborn children, nonetheless gave him a polite and hospitable reception. That was a moment, a rare moment, of constructive national debate, which we should repeat. I think, in concluding, connectivity is often used poorly. Yes, our devices can connect us. But we haven't thought much about what that connectivity is going to mean. How are we going to actually talk with each other? I reject the idea that, ah, it's just going to be this way, and we can't do anything about it. That conversation will trend toward the lowest common denominator. There have been changes in our national conversation over time. It is no longer appropriate in what used to be called polite company uh, to make sexist or racist remarks, irrespective of what people are thinking. Mores have changed. I believe that we can do the same with anonymous social commentary and over time move it to the category of things which may be allowed, like pornography, but is not acceptable in polite company. But to do so, we'll have to send out signals as society, as educator, as parents and adults, uh, to others, and especially young people, that there are other ways of having conversations. And what we'll find, I think, is receptivity, because the polling data and the ethnographic studies, if you like, of young people suggest that the digital natives may be living in social media, but they're not particularly happy about aspects of it. Uh, this, I think, is one of the challenges for our time. Our device, we've created great devices. We haven't given enough thought yet about how to use them to truly connect, debate, and converse with one another. So let me stop there. I'd be delighted to have your comments and questions. Well, thank you very much. Uh, well, I have. I have a lot of questions, but let me first let our audience, uh, the gentleman in the green shirt here, and please identify yourself for, uh, for our audience as well. I'll identify myself as Don. <laughs> I've worked at the CIA. I've worked in commercial software engineering and development, so I'm familiar with technology. And what I've noticed about the topic area we're talking about is it bridges both uh, what I'll call street conversation as well as the conversation of ideas. And in particular, what is most troubling about it is when street conversation, which involves emotional manipulation, gets confused with the commerce of ideas. And it seems to me that the best framework 
through which to view this problem is that you can't restrict street conversation. You can ignore it if you like, but you shouldn't confuse street conversation with the conversation of ideas. I, I agree with that. I'll just say that the confusion has happened because of the great democratization of information that has occurred. That it used to be there were gatekeepers, you know, the anchors, the major newspapers, and they conducted the conversation of ideas that you mentioned. And then all of us were having the conversation on the street. Now, it's completely flat. Uh, the New York Times can post something on Facebook, and so can I. Uh, so uh, we have lost that distinction. By the way, I'm not completely sad for it to go away. The gatekeepers were a few people, mainly guys, all white. Uh, they had their own views. Uh, democratization of information has led a flowering of diverse conversation. That's all wonderful. Uh, but we haven't caught up with uh, where the technology is going in terms of its implications of how we discuss things. Uh, students, for instance, uh, just one more, uh, haven't gotten used to the idea or aren't acquainted with the idea that as opposed to saying something with street conversation, uh, where it's ephemeral um, and heard by a few people, uh, that putting something on the web can spread out and be attributed long to the victim, if not nothing else, long after. Boys, men have done graffiti on bathroom stalls for a long time, uh, but they were uh, usually seen by relatively few people and uh, could be erased relatively quickly. Now a post about a young woman in a high school can go throughout that high school in a second, uh, if not the world. Uh, and be there for a very long time. And uh, that's something I think we have to think deeply about in our society. Adam Powell. Adam Powell with the University of Southern California. Uh, it sounds like you're talking about creating a universe of non-anonymous speech. There would be this other universe of anonymous speech which you equate almost or perhaps entirely with pornography, where does that leave the valid anonymous speech that you've identified as, for example, dissidents in authoritarian regimes? Oh, I think it's still there. And like I said, I have a, since I'm not advocating censoring anyone, uh, I have a pretty easy uh, way of uh, differentiating between the whistleblower or the Russian dissident who wants to post something about Putin uh, but not have his or her name associated with it. I think we can value that since what I'm talking about is devaluing and not listening to anonymous social media. Um, I think we can differentiate it and I don't, since I'm not advocating any laws or regulations, I don't have to worry about hair splitting differences and the like. And look, I mean, this is an effort that is going to take a long time and will move slowly and uh, there's going to be a lot of confusion. There's a lot of confusion now. There'll be a lot more confusion. But I think if we can start to think about and say as a society, in a lot of social instances, it should matter that you put your name to something, and that's the only credible comment, I think that would be an, an advance. 
I'm going to take uh, moderator's privilege here. Uh, it seems that historically there are cycles of times when uh, speech is anonymous, even when it's a limited uh, uh, in, in a newspaper, such as the Federal's papers were published under Publius, uh, and uh, in the 18th century and early 19th century was not uncommon to have have things written uh, anonymously. Um, today, in, in certainly in print versions, that doesn't happen, and yet online uh, anonymity is, is, is the norm rather than the exception. Can you give us any insights into what led to uh, the abandonment of anonymity uh, in, in the print historically? Uh, and is there any, are there any lessons we can learn from that? That's a, that's a very good question. Uh, I mean, the Federalist Papers were in part in a, in a revolutionary time, and there was a style, but I can't say um, why, in that particular instance, an attribution took over. That was more in a political discourse than the kind of social discourse I'm interested in. But I, I couldn't give you a, a theory as to why that transition occurred. Maybe it's because the a very rough time, and, and people would burn down newspapers, and uh, it was a very rough time. Okay, let's uh, go back to our audience, uh, the lady here in the jacket. Susan Benish, the Berkman, uh, Berkman Klein Center <clears throat> for Internet and Society and the Dangerous Speech Project. I've just uh, completed a study of online hateful and dangerous speech and what we call successful counter speech. In other words, um, uh, circumstances in which it seems that civil encounter between uh, people who don't know each other leads to a favorable result. So um, it seems useful to study, in fact, what works. Um, a question to follow on, on um, uh, the discussion of anonymity. I'm, I'm surprised to, to hear that uh, uh, most encounters online or most uh, uh, posts online are anonymous. Um, I, I would, uh, you didn't assert that yourself. I didn't, I didn't yourself. say that. I didn't um, say I didn't give a count. Uh, but it was your moderator who, who suggested something like that just now. Um, our observation is that uh, in a number of different um, contexts, including uh, uh, Kenya before the very fraught national elections of 2013, the United States over the last very fraught uh, year or so, uh, that um, I would say it's always very difficult to quantify, of course, and we never know whether we've got a representative sampling. But the majority of the really awful content we see is posted by people who are indeed identifiable. So, so I wonder, first of all, um, if I can put you a little further on the link between, or the apparent link between anonymity and terrible behavior. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm not sure that anonymity is by itself as strong, um, as strong a marker for, for terrible uh, behavior of various kinds online. And secondly, uh, we see a great deal of it that isn't apparently coming from youth. I'd love to be able to say on behalf of those of us who are not youth that it's just them, their generation, and not us. 
unfortunately, that uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. And then finally, a question. Uh, and and also thanks for a magnificent presentation and extraordinary overlap of ideas and concern. Um, are you proposing that this this uh, uh, drive against anonymity be a, a normative consensus, a campaign? Since you say that you don't, and, and I agree with wholeheartedly with this, you don't want to rely on law and regulation. So how would you get people to be less anonymous in more, can you tell us, in more concrete terms? Thank you so much. Sure, and, and thank you, and, and thank you for referencing uh, that, that important work. On the link between anonymity and behavior, I didn't quite go there. Um, I just talked about the speech itself. I was faced with this problem, though, as president of Colgate, when we had one anonymous post on Yik Yak, which we thought was a violent threat against a named individual. What to do? Was it serious? Was it probably not, but that wasn't quite uh, a chance I was willing to take either. Uh, Maybe the odds were one in 10, but if it was one in 10 of someone getting hurt, you still had to be serious about it. So um, you know, the, the legal system provided no recourse whatsoever. Uh, we provided the student with uh, uh, campus safety protection for a while. I don't know about, uh, I think the link between what people sometimes say that sounds violent and violent activity. I agree with you that that's a tenuous link simply because the volume of potentially violent expression has increased so much. There's a special instance of terrorism and the incitement of terrorism, but that's not really where I was. I was really staying in um, the speech itself uh, can be degrading, harmful, to people without ever going to, does this incite actions? And there's lots of debate now about whether ubiquitous pornography on the internet, for instance, uh, affects social relations and lots of other questions. But I was really sticking with the speech itself. So, uh, and I'll stay there for the moment, although I grant you that it's an important question, especially in particular areas like terrorism, about what's the link between expression and action. I missed the second part, second comment you made. I, I was perhaps in, in my enthusiasm to ask you so many things not clear. I was trying to ask about the link between anonymity and harmful, hateful, yeah, I, uh, uh, threatening speech, since we unfortunately haven't seen such a robust link. In other words, for example, the Supreme Court has just decided the Alanis case, which, as you know, is a case of a highly known individual, namely an ex-husband, making death threats on Facebook, openly, explicitly. Um, there was absolutely no question about his identity, and there are all too many cases like that. It, it's not to say that anonymity is not um, a factor and certainly where a, where a platform like Yik Yak, uh, um, uh, I was going to use the word facilitates, but maybe even promotes anonymity, um, then just as you said, uh, 
there are terrible cases, including at American University where we had a, an awful example of racism just in this last academic year. So I, I, don't, I don't mean to say that I don't think anonymity is a factor, just that um, I wonder uh, uh, whether it is as much, whether it accounts for as much of the problem. Uh, and then the, and then the la my, my final question was how, uh, of course, there, there, there isn't going to be one magic bullet that will solve this problem in any case. So um, I don't disagree with your goal of diminishing the use of anonymity as a, as a mask. Um, how exactly would you do that if not with law and regulation? Right. On the third point, I think norms do change in society. Um, one of the reasons I'm trying to give this speech and in front of many audiences possible, in addition to discussing what I think is an important problem and getting comments is, in my wildest dreams, I would like there to be a platform uh, that provides people with the ease of conversation uh, that Yik Yak or others provide, but where people are named. Um, and uh, I don't know if there's a market for that or not, but that would certainly be one way to go. And some people have tried that with limited success. And more generally, I'd like to see us sending a signal at all times that uh, anonymous speech is not um, acceptable. I mean, it drives me crazy when television commentators, you know, will say, well, we've got a tweet here from Joe32 that says this. Well, why? Uh, why not uh, have people who have their name, and now we can verify their names, why not uh, uh, voluntarily uh, limit uh, yourselves uh, to those people? Just on this point about the anonymity of comments on the internet, and again, I, I don't know how you quantify it. I'm, I'm delighted to hear you have quantified this in some way, and my comment was purely anecdotal. But even if you go to completely legitimate websites, to news organization sites that allow comments on articles, the comments are usually from Joe32 or someone and maybe it's possible to trace back if, if one uh, had the effort and the capability of doing that. But for the ordinary reader, Joe 32 is, is completely anonymous. And Joe 32 just said something outrageous. Uh, and, and it's not just Joe 32, it's Joe 31 through Joe 30,000. And, and it's just a series of really, to, I think to most people, pretty anonymous comments that uh, uh, after one or two were not very insightful. Uh, and, and why these legitimate news sites allow these types of posts, it's very different from letters to the editor of a newspaper where it's, it's Jane Doe at you know, such and such a place, and if you want to go find Jane Doe, you, you probably could. But I, I, I mean, uh, I, I think the internet simply has uh, allowed and, and nurtured this anonymous commenting in a way that I think uh, Professor Herbst has explained can, can lead to some very bad outcomes. 
We have lots of comments today. Okay, uh, next question. Let's go to this side over here, the gentleman here in the front in the check shirt. Uh, Professor Herbst, uh, thank you very much for your comments. Um, my name is Arjun, Arjun Krishna, and I'm a student over at Georgetown University. Um, so I wanted to kind of ask a little bit about the specifics of your proposal as it relates to changing incentives in the tech community. Uh, and also linger on the notion of user privacy and the way that your recommendation, you know, voluntary, of course, uh, how that would affect, um, you know, anonymity and how the implications that that would have for consumers and their trust of, you know, the services and products that co companies like Google, for example, provide. Because it seems that, you know, a stipulation, however voluntary, of making sure that whatever you do on the internet, you know, is traced back to your name, especially in light of the 2013 Snowden revelations, would have effects for the way that consumers, you know, whether they would want to use those products anymore. Um, obviously, there is not a necessary link between tying your name to a particular post and, you know, reveal of personally identifiable information. However, it's kind of difficult to disaggregate those two things in the public view. Um, so my question, getting a little more specific, is how do you think you can convince tech companies to perhaps change their stance on anonymity in light of the fact that this would draw, you know, some consumer backlash, or at least to some extent? Yeah, I, I think uh, the only way to convince tech companies is for their consumers to vote with their feet. Um, Look, I get the companies, they want to have maximum eyeball time on their platforms, uh, and they have responsibilities to shareholders and owners and the like, uh, and they're providing a service. I get all that. I think uh, it's unlikely that uh, you're going to convince companies to change. You've got to convince consumers that there's an alternative way to do it, and then the companies will be more than glad uh, to provide a platform. But I think this has to start with people, not companies. Uh, lady in the back. Um, the, one, the one example you use where there is civil behavior on a campus happens to be a conservative campus with a liberal candidate. You will find quite a different reaction and almost every major university in this country, when somebody from the right comes, just Google the Triglypuff and Milo Yiannopoulos incident. Um, the reason people want to have anonymity is because these kind of people will track you down. They will try to go after your place of employment. This has happened to people on Twitter and, and, and Facebook, and I think it's a very slippery slope. And you're doing this to protect, you know, these these special snowflakes because they may be triggered by, by someone using dangerous words online. This, the, the First Amendment was to protect unpopular speech. I think this is, I think this is a, a, a horrible move, and I agree that it, if, if these um, companies start, people are going to vote with their feet. Somebody can create another company. It's like you're trying to shut down the Internet. Well, like I said, I mean, um... You know, I'm in the position of being a, a strong First Amendment advocate, but I just care about the content of what's being said. I mean, I think it's not enough to say you should be able to say what you want on the Internet. 
I agree with that. Uh, I think uh, that there is also other consequences. And yes, I agree that much of what's said on campus about campus conversation is uh, overblown and at times ridiculous. I will also tell you uh, that I'm concerned about some of the things that are said. Uh, and they are hurtful, and that's not a rationale for government or college administrators uh, to intervene. It's a rationale for us to say, what kind of speech do we listen to? I mean, the First Amendment guaranteed the right of expression. It didn't guarantee the right of reception. It didn't guarantee that people would listen to you. Uh, and uh, that's where I want to have the discussion. Uh, if people want to continue with anonymous speech, because of one reason or another, this world is going to allow them to. I think we should just give some more thought uh, to what speech without attribution means, and that there are speeches which are more credible than others. And this is part of a big conversation we have to have about the very good aspects of democratization of information on the internet. Everyone has the ability to communicate with everyone else. It's not just Walter Cronkite talking to us anymore. Uh, but there are consequences, and uh, I think we should discuss those consequences. But uh, at all times, I've continued to advocate uh, that people should have their First Amendment uh, freedoms, and uh, not only advocated, but I believe acted uh, uh, when faced with those questions. want to share with us is you once told me a story, a horrific story at Colgate about uh, students posting essentially criminal acts uh, against uh, an underage person that, that somehow was facilitated by anonymity. Uh, I think that might help illustrate. Well, I mean, I think there are, you know, part of it is, I think when the, I think there are a couple of things. First, I think the companies can be held to account when people violate their own terms of use. Uh, and they've been wishy-washy about that. Uh, when we thought that there was a violent threat against a named individual which violated Yik Yak's own terms of use, they still refused to release the metadata there because it was, okay, you've re and I don't think they took any position on whether the terms of use that had been actually violated. But it seemed to be, OK, this person violated terms of use, but we're not going to do anything about it. Um, and then our legal system is really not, has not caught up uh, in any manner. Uh, you know, Madison County uh, faces all kinds of difficult challenges in central New York, and I'm not sure going after the metadata for a person uh, who was in the Hamilton area was necessarily what they wanted to do. So it was a very difficult situation, and it was, um, it was aggravating because there was no recourse, especially because of the particular case that this was actually a violent threat against the named individual, um, where uh, I thought, you know, we had to do something, but what exactly to do? was unclear. Now, are we going to stop that? Uh, no, not in the world I've, uh, I've tried to describe. But I think we can push against it in very significant ways. This gentleman in the front. 
very much for uh, an excellent discussion. My name is Andre Goodfriend. I'm at the Department of State. Uh, most recently served in Hungary and before that in Damascus, currently working on the State Department's open government plan. But the views are my own. And I guess that gets to sort of the flip side of putting yourself forward as an individual and I have it by attaching yourself to an organization and giving your name, legitimizing or giving extra legitimacy to what it is that you're saying. The challenges that, that we're seeing, I think, in, in some of the places where hate speech is causing turmoil in society, like Syria, like uh, Hungary, is the legitimation of hate speech. When people in uh, positions of authority, uh, with their name, use hate, hate speech either in the parliament or in the Congress or as head of government. Uh, and you know, here, perhaps, we might have seen the change coming with the end of the Fairness Doctrine uh, and the increase in the broadcasting spectrum, so different news channels were able to take perspectives and legitimize hate speech or legitimize, let's say, partisan or extreme speech and create that environment where uh, people are, where people see that this type of speech is being said by people who name their names, who are in authority. And you'd mentioned the, um, uh, the examples of Joe32 uh, posting anonymously and ask why is the television reporter citing these, tw these tweets? That's the legitimation and, there's a, and that's a legitimate question. Why are people in uh, why are people in authority legitimizing this speech? And in your first in your early example, when you noted about Yik Yak, and that for a while the teachers came onto the uh, uh, came onto the platform as well to act as adults in the room and be legitimate figures there who were showing that there's a different way to conduct yourself. So my question is you know, perhaps it's not the anonymity it's that there is uh is that we've legitimized the hate speech how do we how do we encourage more adult behavior in this room with named people who uh who are uh, providing legitimate who are legitimizing the the counter speech i think the type of thing that you were talking about before with regards to um countering hate speech. Right. I mean, that's a different question, but an important one. And again, the democratization of information has allowed all kinds of people to say things and be heard that might not have been uh, possible in the past. I think the only counter to uh, what you say, named hate speech, hate speech by leaders or putative leaders of groups, um, is to try to make sure that it doesn't work. So with the Knight Foundation, we did a, a survey of First Amendment. Uh, we did our annual survey of First Amendment uh, rights uh, recently, where we asked the representative sample of the American public uh, what you think of about a variety of issues. Uh, and uh, we've asked for a long time, do you think there should be less protection for marginal or fringe religious groups. Uh, that question went out to the field a couple weeks before the Orlando shootings. 
we decided to go out into the field again and ask the same question after the Orlando shootings to see if this particular incident um, made people, our hypothesis was be that they'd be more willing to accept infringement on uh, or decrease the rights of what they viewed as fringe or minority religious groups. In fact, the opposite was true. Uh, the people who thought it was acceptable to restrict uh, the religious rights of these groups actually went down after Orlando. I thought that was a, uh, a good moment uh, for American society because perhaps it made people think, uh, well, if uh, these groups are marginalized, if there's the kind of heated rhetoric which we saw about them, is that the kind of society we actually live in? And people opted for more freedom, contrary to what you may have read the newspapers assumed and the like, after a horrific incident. Leaders do things because they work, right? They're entrepreneurs who seek to gain votes or other types of support. Um, and uh, they are constantly creating new vocabularies uh, in order to attract new types of constituencies. They will defer from those types of vocabularies or move on to other tactics if they find they don't work. Uh, so I think that's the only argument. Now, when you get to a case as advanced in terms of destabilization as Syria, uh, where it's not just fighting words, it's fighting, I think then uh, it's a very complex situation at that point. And I'm not sure the vocabulary is driving it so much as the very real and dangerous situation on the ground. But in Hungary, which you mentioned, I think it is a question of why is this tactic seemingly working? I mean, I take a very instrumentalist view of leaders, uh, that they do have beliefs, yes, but they also are very sensitive to what works. And if they're doing something, then it's because they perceive that they can gain political advantage. And I think we have to think long and hard about how to counter that. I'll take just a couple more questions. Uh, Miguel. Hi, Miguel Palabrica. I'm an intern at the Hudson Institute. Um, so I was just wondering about the time horizon of the issue you're talking about. I've been on the internet my entire life. So um, you talk about anonymity and you talk about Facebook and current social media platforms, but you look at the way that these platforms came into being, especially things like Facebook and specifically Facebook. And its major innovation was the fact that it got rid of anonymity, that most people attach their names to their profiles and that those profiles were used to start accounts on all sorts of different things. My SoundCloud account, my, face, my Facebook, my SoundCloud, my Spotify, all have my name on them. And yet you still see the kind of talk in like a non-anonymous space. But not, anonymous spaces have existed for a long time. MySpace was far worse in terms of civility than Facebook is or was from my experience in the past. And those communities continue to exist. So I was just, and this is coming from my personal experience, just can you, you have a discussion on the civility on the internet without discussing internet forums as the originator of these kinds of issues, specifically 4chan and Reddit, which have been completely ignored by the discussion so far? Well, I think I'm interested in discussion wherever it occurs. I mean, I chose Yik Yak uh, because it's a relatively easy one. Uh, to discuss, and uh, because I had personal involvement in it. Uh, but 
Look, there are all kinds of spaces and eddies and niches on the Internet, some like Reddit, quite large. Um, and uh, I, I'm not as interested, although I talked about Yikak some, I'm not as interested in the platform per se as what people's underlying beliefs are about attribution and about civility. And I think if there was a societal movement in that regard, then consumers, viewers, participants would push those platforms in different directions. And that's what I'm most interested in. I will say, update, because you brought up Facebook, fair enough. YCAC has maybe peaked uh, and seems to be uh, declining. And some people have said that's because the anonymity doesn't allow stickiness to a particular platform like Facebook does because you're named on it. We'll see. Um, so maybe its peak has been reached, but then there'll be something else. And so the problem won't go away. But if companies over time perceive that there are advantages to attribution, they'll find a way of going in that direction. Let's take just one more uh, gentleman back here. I'm Raphael Danziger, consultant on international affairs. With regard to the norm of non-anonymity, suppose the norm prevails, and suppose that Joe 32 identifies himself as Joe Smith. Who is going to really go through the trouble of verifying is this Joe Smith when you have thousands of Joe Smith appearing on the Internet? How is it exactly going to change things? Thank you. I think Joe Smith will think... Uh, it changes things uh, because I think as soon as you take that shroud of anonymity off, uh, people act differently. And I think that there are, you know, sure the internet at one point is a global conversation, but there are also more local conversations. And this was the genius behind Yik Yak at the very beginning, which is there aren't 10,000 Joe Smiths in Hamilton, New York. Believe me, there might be only one or two. Um, but will you solve every last problem? No. But I believe putting his last name on, and you know, we've developed now ways of having trusted or verified accounts also. I think there are all steps that can be done. Uh, I just want to get us off where we are right now, uh, where there isn't much discussion at all about the values or nature of attribution. With that, please join me in thanking Professor Jeffrey Harris. <laughs>